The meltdown in cryptocurrencies is raising alarm bells about the future of digital assets. Or is it? I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Fears over soaring prices and slowing economic growth have sent investors fleeing from risk assets, notably cryptocurrencies. To help us understand the drivers, evolution, and the outlook for crypto and the broader digital assets ecosystem, I'm sitting down with Matthew McDermott, Global Head of Digital Assets at Goldman Sachs, to discuss the evolution and future of the space. Matt, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So crypto assets are notoriously volatile. We all know that. But last week was especially wild. Even amid the immense volatility we saw across assets, we did see crypto assets underperforming. So what do you make of this underperformance? You know, it certainly was a wild week. That's one thing is certain. What we need to remember, though, this is still kind of an emerging asset class with a large number of retail participants. So I think everyone's aware of the volatility in this marketplace. So seeing moves like this in an environment doesn't come as a huge surprise. But you know, to your point, crypto definitely highlighted its more risk-on correlation in the way it behaved last week, and perhaps a little less than the inflationary hedge that has been much muted across you know, the media previously. The move so far has been correlated with the broader macro market moves. And I think no asset class that certainly has a discounted cash flow has escaped the stress implied by the inflationary pressures, although we've definitely seen more extremes across the crypto market over the last week. The implied and realized volatility of Bitcoin and the crypto market in general have historically been more than double of those inequities. And for instance, you know, even since the start of this year, and as mentioned, we've definitely seen a much higher correlation of crypto to US equities. But I would note that you know, Bitcoin has been trending in line with the NASDAQ in terms of its year-to-day losses, which is circa 30%. The other point I think which is kind of worth mentioning, we also have seen certainly since the beginning of the year that volatility in the more traditional markets, rates, FX, equities, commodities, has definitely increased quite materially over that six-month period. Bitcoin, conversely, you know, has actually drifted lower, which is potentially for a number of reasons, potentially kind of more institutional involvement in the market. This changed obviously last week, in part because of the macro backdrop as mentioned, but also the idiosyncratic events in and around TerraUSD, which had a profound impact. So you just mentioned TerraUSD. That led a lot of the volatility we saw last week. It's the fourth largest stablecoin. And as its name suggests, it's supposed to protect somewhat from volatility. So could we see others follow? What do you make of that situation? I think it's important not to group all stablecoins in the same bucket. The mechanisms that underwrite these can vary significantly. Some are fully asset-backed, including fiat only. Some algorithmic, like TerraUSD. And just to make it clear for the listener, an algorithmic stablecoin is a token that relies on algorithms to regulate supply and demand in order to peg its price. And what we saw last week was obviously a breaking in that peg to quite dramatic effect. And then there are stablecoins that merge a combination of the two. We still see regulated, transparent, and fully-backed stablecoins having huge potential for this space. I think what we've seen recently will help give rise to a consolidation and additional regulation, which we welcome as a regulated bank. So let's take a step back and look at crypto assets as part of the digital assets ecosystem. So we talk so much about cryptocurrencies, but there are other digital assets in the mix. So what do digital assets include? So the way we define digital assets is not only including cryptocurrency, but also natively issued or digitally represented traditional assets. 
and digital money, which all move on the blockchain. The most obvious blockchain that people are familiar with is the Bitcoin blockchain, but there are many others, and we're starting to see more emerge across the market, which we can touch upon later. But these allow applications to be actually built upon them that allow us to experiment from a gaming, NFT, you know, even the metaverse, but also from a financial perspective. I'd say the one other piece I would mention in the context of digital assets is digital currency. So this is a digital representation of currency that is on chain. And what I mean by that is most people would probably consider currency at this stage to be digital, but it still settles in the traditional rails, you know, in certain the traditional way. So that typically is market hours of UK, US or wherever. What blockchain potentially does on the forward allows all of this to happen on a 24-hour basis, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Right. And just to clarify, when we say we're moving on a blockchain rail and it's 24-7, you're essentially saying that you don't need intermediaries to facilitate these types of transactions. The technology embeds that. That's exactly right. And you know there are different flavors of distributed ledger technology. You have the private distributed ledgers, which a lot of development has presently been developed on. But then you also have the public blockchains. And so they're completely decentralized. And that, to your point, is the key thing. So you do not rely on intermediaries. And this is one of the key benefits of the underlying technology. You remove that central focal point. Interesting. And so with all that in mind, every time I talk to you, it feels like this market is exploding ever more, more and more investors getting involved. How have changes in how crypto is treated helped facilitate the growth that we're seeing in the market? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I think what we've seen, even since I was last interviewed on the Exchanges podcast, was just this maturity across both the market participants and the infrastructure which I think has given a not only confidence to many different institutional sectors, but also I think has enabled you know, many more traditional traders to really broaden how they trade this marketplace because of this maturity and product suite. And even if you just think of a couple of players, you know, look at the hedge funds, for example. They are increasingly looking for exposure through options. One of the key drivers for that is because they don't need to make an expression whether the market's going to go up or down, they can trade the volatility. And I think from my perspective, this is really key because as you think about probably 12, 18 months ago, the only thing you could really do is just take a directional view in terms of where the market goes. Now, and the market here being Bitcoin or Ethereum, for example, cryptocurrencies. And as the market does evolve and mature, this ability to trade the volatility, so not having to express a view necessarily, I think is hugely powerful. And that maturity also makes it more akin to existing financial instruments that have many different trading strategies that can be applied to them. And so we started to see this evolve as a function of that. Other sectors have got more confidence. We see more activity from hedge funds, as I mentioned, but also asset managers, pension funds, corporates, and even from our private wealth clients. You know, They're exceedingly active, many of them in this space. But if we take a step back and I think back to other conversations we've had, inherent in our discussion was always this hesitancy from investors because it's still relatively new. Maybe it's maturing, but still relatively new relative to other asset classes they're used to. There's still security concerns, regulatory concerns. So what has really changed to help give investors more confidence in the space? Yeah, I mean, look, an awful lot has changed even since I took the job. And I think greater certainty in terms of where the regulatory process is heading. 
And ultimately, what I mean by that, I don't think any of us have real clarity in terms of how many of these different regulations will ultimately play out that have been proposed. But I think if I was an institutional investor, seeing the whole variety of different regulators across the globe propose regulations for digital assets and crypto, you even have the executive order in the US. There's just a lot that suggests this marketplace is here to stay. We don't ultimately know how it will evolve, but that confidence now is really allowing people to progress in terms of their own investment and resource deployment to this space. So I think that's one key area. I think the second, and we touched on this earlier, is the maturing product offering. As we mentioned, there's just a maturity both across trading venues and service providers. That gives confidence naturally to maybe more traditional institutional investors. And also, when you have that ability to trade in products, be it cash settled derivatives, for example, that you're familiar, you trade in a normal course, that makes it feel a little bit more PAU. So that, I think, has had a very positive impact. And just talking even a bit more broadly, digitization is changing how people trade. It's speeding up the time it takes to clear and settle securities trade. So what does this all mean for trading and the capital markets more broadly? We definitely believe that the underlying blockchain technology, you know, which we touched on earlier, will have a profound impact on the financial markets. Again, there's discussion around, is it on the private distributed ledgers or do we think about the public blockchains? And the regulations will ultimately dictate how this ultimately manifests itself in the short to medium term. We're positive on both with various safeguards you know, around that. And so from our perspective, there are probably four key things that really are driving this and they apply to both. One is the precision of the technology, this ability to be pinpoint accurate in terms of when you want to settle. I mean, a lot of people talk about atomic settlement, but that ability to settle. So just using a really obvious example is the transaction that we were involved in last year where we worked with the European Investment Bank. We had two other co-lead managers. We did a digitally native debt issuance to a blockchain. Under French law, we were able to do that without a CSD or a custodian in its traditional form. The blockchain was the source of truth. As this was on Ethereum, basically the actual transactions are validated by the miners on that blockchain, which are decentralized. The European Investment Bank typically had this T plus five, so it traded and it settled five days later. We actually settled T plus one, so one day after trading. That technology allows you to do that. So that's the first point, this precision. The second one is thinking about risk reduction. And you know the most obvious example is settlement risks. In today's world, there's a lot of activity whereby assets move from one subcustodian to the next, and you always run the risk of settlement failure. This ability to represent the asset either natively or through a token on a blockchain just means you eliminate that because everything's ultimately a little bit like a book movement. And so that settlement risk is significantly reduced. The third area, which I think works for many markets, maybe not everyone, but greater transparency. And I think that, you know, over time will become ever more powerful, particularly as you start to think about some of these more opaque markets. And then fractionalization, that ability to really reduce the denominations and appeal to a much broader universe of investors, again, probably over time. And yeah, the final one is kind of the economic efficiencies. So as we think through this ability to reduce the number of intermediaries, reduce costs, and also identify revenue opportunities. As someone, you know, we feel that we're really working with many others at the forefront of what this technology could do. And I think it offers cost reduction, but also revenue opportunities. You touched on this earlier, but if we think about digital cash and what that means for users 
and banks and the economy. I mean, how is it different from the experience that we're used to today? Isn't almost everything digital in that sense? So how is it different? How do you see that evolving? I think that's a key point. I mean, I don't think fundamentally it's going to be that much different. In the UK, I knew something like Revolut, basically to switch currencies and pay people in different countries. And it's all seamless, appears totally digital. But then when you peel the onion back, actually, when you start to look at the payment rails by which that cash moves, and the old legacy settlement systems, as you can start paying cross-border, you often find that there's a number of different intermediaries involved. Suddenly, the costs have increased. And there's basically a time from execution to settlement, shall we say. And so there is just a lot of frictions that can be reduced from that process. Now, the thing about digital money is there's like three key categories. And I think this is really important to point out in our mind. There's one, central bank digital currencies. And increasingly, there are two flavors to that. You have the retail piece, and then you have the wholesale We've been involved in many group of concepts with central banks, certainly on the wholesale side. Retail is a little bit more complex because of the monetary policy angle and ultimately what that can mean. But I think it's hugely exciting the speed with which now we're seeing central banks really focus on this. And so while it's still two or three years at least away, we just continue to see development. We're having very active dialogue with many. I mean, I think now there are over 87 countries that are exploring you know, the development of the central bank digital currency and are at some part of that evolution curve. The second, I would say, digital currency is synthetic central bank digital currencies. And this is where you place cash on deposit at the central bank and tokenize that. Good example, you know, keep referring back to the VIB transaction. But what was exciting about that trade was that we actually settled the digital debt issuance on-chain DBP versus the central bank digital currency. It was actually a synthetic central bank digital currency because it was basically tokenized cash held at the central bank. So that's just really a good, obvious proof of concept that was applied there. And we actually think that that could be one of the avenues that really could expedite the use of digital cash on chain, perhaps before we see CBDCs more regularly used. And then the third real barrier is stable coins. As we talked about, there's been a huge amount discussed in the market about this. Let's spend a minute talking about investment opportunities within digital assets. We've seen a surge of venture capital investments into crypto startups. They've really been an outlier among sectors as fears have mounted over growth and recession risk. Is this fundraising sustainable? What do you see for the future of that space? Yeah, I think this is a hotly discussed topic. I mean, I certainly would definitely defer to my colleagues at Growth Equity, you know, who along with the firm-wide strategy group, we work very closely with in terms of identifying investment opportunities across the digital asset crypto marketplace. And I don't think anyone would deny the valuations. They're certainly pretty high right now. So personally, I would expect some normalization at some point, although when that is, is unclear, just given there still seems to be a huge amount of capital you know, ready to deploy. And also there continues to be high levels of interest, you know, because people continue to see exponential growth opportunities and are keen to deploy that capital. From our perspective, we continue to identify exciting investment opportunities, which enable us to expedite strategic objectives. But we're primarily focused around the blockchain infra. And I think that's very important, you know, as we want to, like I say, accelerate our own strategic focus. So you just touched on it during the conversation, but potential regulation clearly remains a key focus for the space. 
And last week's crypto meltdown also prompted Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to call for new regulations. So where are we on the regulatory front? Which way do you see this leaning? We've always been of the view that greater regulatory clarity is a key factor in order to grow this crypto marketplace. And so that'll come as no surprise. As you alluded, I mean, moves last week will certainly bring more attention to the marketplace and help, I hope, accelerate some of the regulations that have been discussed globally, which we welcome and have been quite vociferous about. We, as an institution, continue to actively engage with regulators globally and look forward to working together with them to build out the asset class in a transparent and regulated way as we work closely with our clients. As I think back to when I started, took over the team a couple of years ago, the regulation and just the whole focus from the regulators has, has moved on with great speed, which I think has provided a huge amount of confidence to the institutional client base. So... Matt, obviously, we've come through this bout of volatility. Things are stabilizing now, but there are still, as you say, lots of opportunities ahead. What are your key messages for investors right now? It's not too grandiose to say digital assets will bring about a paradigm shift in the financial markets and beyond. Clearly, there was a huge amount of volatility last week, but we continue to see a huge amount of exciting developments across the marketplace. And as we talked about the breadth of the business, when we look at digitizing the life cycle of assets and the profound impact that can have on the financial marketplace in terms of risk reduction, more efficient use of liquidity, and just general efficiencies, we're very excited about that space. Let's not forget, you know, this time last year, we saw a huge amount of depreciation in the crypto market cap. So it's not like we've not been here before. And I think what we're now starting to see is, you know, the development of a maturing marketplace. And so that with regulations, greater transparency, I think is only a good thing. So we remain very excited about the opportunity, specifically around investment. I think valuations have got kind of a little out of kilter. So perhaps we'll see some more sensible valuations in terms of investment opportunities too. Matt, this has not been our first conversation. I'm sure it's not going to be our last conversation. We will continue to check in with you on how this space evolves. No, greatly appreciated. And thank you for having me and hopefully next time in person. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, May 3rd and Monday, May 16th, 2022. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to like, share, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.